Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySelfland.com. Last week, we, uh, I started a little series here. I'm going to do a three-part series on accusation. And uh, we talked last week about how Satan puts accusing thoughts in our, in our minds about other people, about God, about ourselves. Showed you a bunch of scriptures to develop that. The next two weeks, we're going to look at accusation from a totally new twist that very few Christians ever look at it uh, from. But actually, biblically speaking, the Bible talks more about the kind of accusation we're going to look at today and next week than it does uh, the stuff even that we talked about last week, as important as that was. And so uh, I just want to pray, and then we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, thank you for the camp. Thank you that we get to go up there today on this beautiful day. Thank you for the family feel that your Holy Spirit has brought to this church. We're a big family. That's what we are. And it feels that way, and we enjoy being together. And I thank you. That is your spirit at work here in this place. And we are so much more than just services or formality. We're a family. And I just pray that you would bless our time together this afternoon. I pray that you would bless this summer the kids at camp. Where we're going to have whatever, 900 to 1,000 up there again this year. And, and some of my kids are going to be there too. And I just pray, Jesus, that every kid that goes there this, this summer is going to encounter your Holy Spirit in a memorable way. And I mean memorable. I'm talking about altar moments, Lord, where they encounter your love, where they encounter your holiness, where they encounter their absolute desperate need for you. Jesus, I pray every kid to encounter you in powerful ways this year. I pray for the counselors to be filled with your Holy Spirit, to just see what an important job this is, that they would be serious about you, that they would be full, about, full of you and full of your love, and Jesus, that they would minister you to those kids. And in your name we pray, amen. So I'm going to go to Zechariah 3, and uh, this is one of those, uh, well, at the moment you're in the Minor Prophets. Uh, minor just in the sense that they're shorter, not minor in the sense that they're less important, but they're called the Minor Prophets. As soon as you're in the Minor Prophets, you're in a kind of um, uh, uh, territory that a lot of Christians in the West, we just sort of avoid those books. We don't know what to do with them. There's a lot of passages in there that sometimes we feel are obscure. And part of the reason is because as Westerners, we believe that the whole Bible is supposed to be just about us. So when we read the Bible in our devos, we're looking for three steps to you know, improve my finances and four steps to improve my marriage and five steps to be a better leader. And that's all fine and good. And we should find practical wisdom in the scriptures. But the fact of the matter is that the prophets are not about us. I mean, ultimately, they are about us. You know, we are included in the whole storyline and stuff. But the prophets are about something much bigger and primarily... They are about uh, Jesus. They don't call him Jesus in the Minor Prophets. They didn't know that name yet. But the Messiah is actually going to come back to earth someday, and he's going to set up his kingdom in the land of Israel, particularly in the city of Jerusalem. That's what the prophets are all about. This is what God cares about. This is what God's dreams are about. And, but as North Americans, to, to many churches nowadays, many Christians, that seems a little bit weird. That's kind of out of my scope. I, I, just want the Bi- I just want to read the Bible for my own personal life. But the fact of the matter is, if we're going to go to a whole other level of maturity as a church and as believers, at some point, if we say we love God, we have to also begin to care about what He cares about. Amen? And so, you know, I even think of my wife. If you ask me about LaDawn, you know, why do, why do you love her? Well, I got all kinds of reasons. Um, and so I tell you, you know, because she's pretty and she's fun on dates and she is a great cook and da, da, da. And I go through all these things. And those are all great reasons for me to love her for. But if that's all I have is what she does for me, then my love for her isn't very mature, is it? And so if you would ask me then and say, well, uh, tell me about LaDawn now. Like you say you love her so much. What is she passionate about? What are her dreams? What is her heart set on? And if I just went, uh, I don't really know what she's into. I don't, I don't really know what her hobbies are. I don't really, really know what she's passionate about. I don't really know what her dreams are about. If I answer that, my love for her is not very mature. And, but for many of us as believers, that is how our love for Jesus is is we have a love for Jesus because he does this, 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 and this for me, and we read our Bibles to find out more practical tips of the ways he can bless us, all of which is fine. Jesus loves to bless us, and there are many benefits to following Jesus. That's not bad. But if that's all we have for our love for Jesus, and someone says, now tell me what Jesus is passionate about, and if we go, uh, uh, 
and we've missed that part of the storyline. It shows that our love for him is a little bit immature. And today, what we're talking about today especially, but then also, again, next week, what we're really getting into is some of the things, what is it that God dreams about when he thinks about the end, when he, when he thinks about his dreams for the future and what he's passionate about, what are the things he cares about? And we're going to be touching on that a bit today. And we're also going to be touching on it because Satan is exactly fighting those things. And he's fighting them with accusation very hard and... and um, and so I want to look at that. But anyway, Zechariah 3. Zechariah 3 is one of those passages that many uh, Christians would consider this to be a bit of an obscure passage. It's one of those passages, if you're reading through the Bible, you just kind of skim past it and go, well, thank you, Lord. I pray that you would bless that in me somehow, and we keep going, right? But Zechariah 3, verse 1, and we see this picture of heaven. Then he showed me an angel, shows Zechariah the prophet, Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand, to accuse him. And so, just like last week, okay, we have another picture here. We saw last week Satan. This is one of his big things, how he seeks to destroy us, how he seeks to intimidate us, how he seeks to, seeks to stop us from things and stop the kingdom of God is through accusations. So we have another picture, yet another picture in Scripture of Satan in heaven making accusations against someone, right? And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem uh, rebuke you. Is not this a brand uh, plucked from the fire. Okay, so again, sim passage similar to last week. Satan's in heaven. He's accusing people. Now, the twist is uh, in this passage here, so we could just take it that way. We could, and, and there's a sense in which we just look at this passage and say, here's another example of Satan accusing an individual in heaven. And, and certainly there is a sense in which we can take it that way. But actually, if you look at the context of this passage, the point of Zechariah 3 is not that Satan has just picked some random individual, Joshua, and he's just picked this one guy, and I'm going to accuse this one individual here because I want to bring him down. That is not the point of the context of this passage. In fact, if you read uh, any commentary on this passage, pretty much, you will find that Joshua the high priest here represents, and if, when we look at the context, I'm going to show you this in just a bit too. When you look at the com context, Satan is not picking on an individual here. He's picking on an entire nation. Okay, and there's a number of reasons. I don't want to go through all the reasons, um, but, uh, but certainly a few things we notice here. First of all, I want you to notice that Joshua is the high priest. That's very significant. The high priest's job, which we're going to come back to again at the end of this message in a, in a powerful way that really imp impacts us as individuals and as a church, but the high priest's job was to represent the nation to God. They were an intercessor. They were an intermediary between the people and God. So when Satan is accusing Joshua the high priest here, his point isn't that he's trying to get the individual person Joshua in trouble. The point is he's bringing accusation against an entire nation. And we even see this in, in, uh, in God's response to his accusation. Satan accuses the high priest, and God says in verse 2 there, he says, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So he doesn't say the Lord who has chosen Joshua. He responds about Jerusalem because he knows Satan's accusation is against the country, okay? And, and so you say, well, why would Satan do that, and how does that apply to us? Well, we're going to get to the application yet uh, further down the road. But, but the question is, why would Satan pick on a nation? I mean, we understand why Satan would pick on uh, individuals. We saw that last week, why Satan would attack us as individuals with accusations about people and accusations about God, and he's, and he's trying to break our relationships and, and the church and all that sort of stuff. We understand why he would accuse us as individual people, but why a whole country? How does that help him? We know Satan hates us. We know he hates God's kingdom. We also know he's very smart. He's not into wasting his time. Why would he go to heaven and accuse not just some individual people? Why would he accuse a whole country? What does he get out of it? And why should we be aware of it? Why would God even put it in the scripture so that we would know to be aware of it? Well, if we go back to the passages just before this in uh, Zechariah chapter 2. I'm going to read you a bunch of verses here and we're going to develop this. It just takes a little bit of time here. Because again, it's outside a lot of the way that we think because we think so individualistically. We're not used to actually looking at the context of scripture and seeing bigger pictures of what's going on. But Zechariah 2, verse 3, this is the passage right before Zechariah 3 where we see Satan accusing the nation of Israel. And we see this, verse 3, And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Okay, so here we have a prophecy of the end. 
and, and, and God is looking forward to the end, and he says, the day is coming. He says, when I'm, I'm, I'm going to come to Jerusalem, I'm going to be to her a wall of fire. That's very passionate language. I'm going to be her defender. Nobody's going to come against her. Nobody's going to accuse her. Nobody's going to attack her anymore. I'm going to be a wall of fire to Jerusalem. That is passionate language. And he says, I'm going to be the glory in her midst. Okay, this is, this is going to happen. God has a place that he's attached to. You know, different ones of us here, we have places we're attached to. Isn't that true? Some of you have that. Uh, some of you have places you like to go on vacation. Some of you maybe have a cottage nearby where you like to go on weekends. And, uh, and uh, you know, LaDonna and I have often talked about it before. You know, we're going to go again this summer. We've got a spot there in southern Ontario, Tobermory. We go there. It's our happy place. Okay, we go there and it's like, ah, oh, we just love being here, right? And many of you have that too. Well, God has a place. And when he comes to earth at the end, you know, at, you know, at the culmination of the age, when he returns to the earth to set up his kingdom forever and ever, he's not just coming to the earth in general to live just anywhere and everywhere. He's coming to a very specific place, Israel, and even more specific than that, he's coming to a city. And he's passionate about this city. Just like some of you have places you're passionate about. You love to go to those places. You love to talk about them. I love to talk about Tobermory. Okay, some of you have your exotic places you like to go and you like to talk about those places. God has a place he's coming to. It's where he's going to build a city. It's where he's going to build his home. And it's where he's going to live forever. He's very passionate about it. And he talks about it a lot. It's here in the scriptures hundreds of times. Hundreds that the city of Jerusalem has talked about and in, especially, and in relation to God coming back to it and all of that, okay? So this is going to happen, okay? And let's keep reading, verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, speaking of Israel, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye, okay? So God says again, apple of his eye. This is where we get this phrase. It's, it's from the Hebrew, actually. It comes because of the scriptures, we actually have a lot of figures of speech like this that come because of the Bible. It's really impacted our culture. But um, the Hebrews had an, had an expression, if you really cared about someone, then they were the apple of your eye. And the reason is, because now there's actually disputes as to where it comes from. Uh, one way of looking at it is if, if, if I look at you and you look into the, the pupil of my eye, the dark black spot, you can see the reflection of what I'm looking at. And so in one sense, it just shows that God really loves the nation of Israel because if you look into his eyes, into the pupil of his eyes, you'll see the reflection of Israel because he's looking at them a lot, okay? That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is just to say that the apple of the eye is, that, is the pupil itself. And of course, if anybody touches the pupil of your eye, it's a sensitive part. It's uh, an important part of your eye. You want to protect it. Um, wherever it came from, the Hebrews had this expression, apple of your eye, which means that you're, it's something, if someone is the apple of your eye, they're someone very precious to you. They're someone you are looking at a lot. They're someone you're very protective of. And God calls the nation of Israel the apple of his eye. Now, we come to the scriptures, and we're constantly looking. Again, because we're so self-centered, we, and it's not, again, it's not bad. We want to come to the scriptures, and we want to find practical wisdom, and we want to find what God thinks about us, and we want to find his blessings, all that sort of stuff. But there also has to come a place where we stop and say, God, what are you passionate about? And he says, I'm really passionate about the nation of Israel. Like, really, really passionate, okay? And the, the amazing thing is a lot of Christians ignore that. Satan is onto something. He knows it. This is part of the reason he is so concerned to be accusing them. We're going to look at more of this in just a moment. But they are the apple of his eye. They really matter to him. Now, some Christians today would argue that's the Old Testament. The Jews rejected God. He's moved on now to the church. He's not passionate about that anymore. And I just ask, are we talking about the same God here? Because Hebrews 13 verse 8 says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he was passionate about something 2,000 years ago, what's 2,000 years to God anyway? I mean, he's lived forever, billions and billions and trillions and forever years. If he was passionate about something 5,000 years ago, how could he be passionate about it then and not be passionate about it now? He's God. This idea that he moves on is actually a scary thing. You say, well, the Jews rejected him, and so he's rejected them. Well, again, I ask, are we talking about the same God here? Because the God I know doesn't break promises because we're unfaithful. If God is able to reject his promises to the Jewish people from the Old Testament, then we as Christians can have no confidence he will keep his promises to us. I'll just say it again. If God is able to 
break his eternal covenant, and I could show you scads of scripture of how his covenant with the Jewish nation was an eternal covenant. If he is capable of breaking his covenant with the Jewish people, then we as Christians can have no confidence that he will keep his covenant with us. Can we? I mean, if it's based on they screwed up, that, so therefore he broke his covenant, wait a minute, how often do we screw up? See, and Paul answered this exact question. Uh, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 2, Paul answers this question because there was Gentile Christians already back then asking this question. They say, hey, the Jewish people rejected Jesus, so obviously God has rejected them. And Paul answers it. He says in Romans 11, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Speaking of the Israelites, speaking of the Jews. And then he says this, can it be any more clear? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected, just in case we missed verse 1 there, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And so one of the reasons why Satan is in, heaven, is in heaven accusing them is because he knows that they are the apple of God's eye. He knows that God is very passionate about them, and so he is accusing them. And again, we, should, we, can, take, we can take note. Satan knows what's important to God. Much of the church is forgetting this. Satan is still up there accusing them. That should set us off to something, that there is something important about this country and this nation of people. But there's another reason why Satan is accusing them, not just because God is passionate about them, but he's also very strategic. Not only does Israel hold a very special place in God's heart, but they also play a very central role in the end times and God's return to earth. Okay? And so I want to keep reading in Zechariah 3. Um, not only is God very passionate about him, they actually play a very central role in the culmination of this age that is to come. And I want to show you this now, and this is why Satan is being very strategic, and as a church, we need to be aware of this for our prayers and, and str strategic of how we do things. But anyway, verse 9, uh, God says, Behold, I will shake my hand over them, that is, the nations that oppressed and attacked Israel. And they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Okay? Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. By the way, I want you to notice there. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Zechariah is saying, the way that you'll know this is the inspired word of God as if this comes true. A lot of Christians today are saying God has rejected the Jewish people. In which case, the prophets are not God's inspired word because it never came true. He says, the way you'll know that the prophets are the inspired word of God is when you see this take place. What take place? God defend Israel from the nations and come and live in Israel. Will be the proof. If that, cannot, if that does not come true, then what we have here is not all the word of God. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me because this actually happens. Verse 10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I will come and I will dwell in your midst. Okay, so God is going to come and dwell in the midst of Israel. But I want you to notice here, it's not that God only loves the Jewish people. Sometimes people get into this weird thing. God only loves the Jews. We're kind of like second-class citizens. It's not that he only loves the Jewish people. If we go to the very next uh, verse, we find this, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Now that's an awesome promise. God says, I'm going to come to Israel, and in the day that I come to Israel to defend Israel from her enemies, in that day, many nations are going to come and join themselves to me, and they also will be my people. Amen. Okay, really important, okay? And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. That's his place, okay? So the thing you have to understand here, it's not just that God loves Israel and nobody else. He loves all the nations. It's very clear. I'm going to show you some scriptures in just a moment. But here's the thing you have to understand. In his sovereignty and in his infinite wisdom, he has chosen Israel to be the vehicle through which he blesses the rest. Okay, and now you're going to begin to see why Satan is so bent on accusing the nation of Israel because he knows strategically it's like a bottleneck. God has said, I'm going to bless the nations through Israel. And Satan knows if I can break that up, if I can break up that relationship between God and Israel, if I can break up that relationship between God and Israel, if I can do, or if I can destroy Israel, and he's got different ways that he can go about it, but he says, if I can do that, then I can, I can stop, I can hinder, I can prevent what God is planning to do in the end for all the nations. Okay? But God has always planned. It's, it's not that God only loves Israel, he has always planned from the very beginning to bless all the nations through Israel. I could show you a number of passages of Scripture in Genesis where God promises this to Abraham. I'll just show you one. Genesis 26, verse 4, God says this to Abraham, I will multiply your offspring, the Jewish people, they obviously weren't called Jews back then, as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? 
So, and, then, and already we've seen this to be true. So Jesus is a Jew. I didn't say was a Jew, is a Jew. When he comes back, he's still going to be Jewish. He's not losing his humanness. Okay, he's not going to be Canadian. I don't think he'll sing the Canadian anthem, and he probably won't speak English, although obviously he can speak it if he wants. He can do whatever he wants. Okay, but he's still a Jew. But through the Jewish people, that's where the Messiah came. I don't know if any of you have noticed, but 100% of the writers of this book, uh, well, maybe not Job, I'm not sure. Yeah, even Job, I'm not sure. Anyway, just don't, there may be one possible exception. I can't think of it off the top of my head. But the rest of them are all Jews, okay? It's just me talking out loud to myself, all right? But the rest are all Jews. Old Testament, New Testament, that, that, that is the gift. It came through them, okay? Paul was a Jew. All the disciples were Jews. Jesus is a Jew. The scriptures came through them. They have been the vehicle through which God has blessed all the nations, but it's not finished yet, okay? It's not finished yet. He's going to bless us even more through them again in the future, and it's so important we know this. See, their role in the whole storyline of God's plan for the end is not yet finished. And Jesus said this in Matthew 23, just shortly before he died, he said this, he cries over Jerusalem. And I wonder again, how much of the Christian heart today do we still have this heart for? We say we walk with Jesus. Do we have his heart for the things he has a heart for? Because Jesus cried over the city of Jerusalem. This is what he did. He said this in Matthew 23, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Okay, and, it, and, and in the context here, he's weeping. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Like, just look at the tender language there. I just, I just want to gather you guys together and protect you and love you. Okay? And you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you. Now, I want you to notice here. Jesus, so the Jewish people as a whole, not all of them, obviously, because all the disciples were Jews. The entire early church, Pentecost, 3,000 people get saved, all Jews, okay? It's not that every Jew rejected Jesus, but as a whole, the nation rejected him, the leadership and stuff, right? So as a whole, okay? Now notice that Jesus does not say, and because you have rejected me, I'm finished with you, because if you don't keep your promises to me, I don't keep my promises to you. That is not God, thankfully. Thank you, God, that you're not like that. Jesus does not say, I'm getting rid of you as a nation. Look what he says. He looks ahead. In his love, he's weeping over Jerusalem. You have rejected me. And even in, right in the middle of them being about to kill him, he's already looking ahead to the time when he's going to restore the relationship between him and them. He already looks ahead and he makes a promise. He makes a prophecy. He says, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says, I'm not coming back to Jerusalem. Like, after I die, I am not coming back to Jerusalem until the leadership of Jerusalem, the nation as a whole, in other words, is, says, blessed is he who comes in, in the name of the Lord until the nation of Israel says, we welcome Jesus back as our Messiah. Amen. Okay, now that's a promise. Now, I don't know if you guys know anything about Jesus. He's God and all. He knows the future. He's called the way, the truth, and the life. He never lies. He never makes anything up. And he never is wrong. So this is actually going to happen. He's not going to come back to Jerusalem, but he is going to come back to Jerusalem, but he's not going to do it until the entire nation says, you are our Messiah. We repent and are going to welcome him back. And now you are beginning to see why Satan is very energized about accusing the nation of Israel. Because he feels like there's a loophole there somewhere. He knows that the timing of Jesus coming back and setting up his kingdom. See, when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, Satan, kaput, done. That's not a date on his calendar. We're, you know, we sing a song, you know, ready for, I shouldn't sing it, but ready for our bride. You know, it's such a good song, coming soon. And I forget the words, but anyway. So did Ray a little bit at the beginning, which was awesome, made me feel good. But, uh, you know, we want, <laughs> thank you. Uh, no, but, uh, you know, we sing, come back, and all of a sudden, Satan is terrified of that day. He's mad about that day. He doesn't want that day. Well, he knows he can't beat Jesus in an arm wrestling match, right? He can't overpower him one-on-one. -on -one. But if he can stop, if he, so, but if he can get Jesus to break his covenant with Israel, or if he can even destroy Israel off the face of the earth, and we're going to get to that in just a bit of history, but already now you're beginning to see a sense of why the Jews, out of all the nations in history, have they been picked on more than everybody else throughout history consistently to be destroyed? It's satanic. Because he figures if, I, if, if there's no Jews in Jerusalem, 
then Jesus can't come back to Jerusalem when they welcome him in. Or if, or if God just gives up on them, so he's just accusing them constantly. God, how can you be a holy, just God? They put your son to death, okay? They this, they've rejected you, they're rebellious, blah, blah, blah. And he just accuses, accuses, accuses. He's trying to accuse based on God's righteousness. You cannot keep your promises here because he's hoping the promise will be broken because then Jesus can't come back, can't set up his kingdom, or at least maybe he can delay it. And so we see that there are various factors that are affecting the timing of Jesus' return. Two big ones, okay? Many people have been taught this idea. Jesus could come back at any moment, like right when you're brushing your teeth, right as you're going to bed. And it's not true. Jesus clearly said in Matthew 24, 14, uh, I will not come back until the gospel has gone to every single ethnic group. The Great Commission has to be completed. He says, and then the end will come. So the, God, the Great Commission has not been completed yet. Jesus can't come back today because the Great Commission hasn't been completed. But we are in the first generation where there's a good chance it could happen. But here we see a second limiting factor. Number one, the Great Commission must be completed. The gospel must go to every ethnic group on the planet. But number two, Jesus is absolutely committed that the Jewish people will welcome him back in Jerusalem. And so he will not come back until he has got them in a place where they are ready as a whole, as an entire nation together, the leadership officially, everything, to welcome him back. When those two things are in place, the Great Commission has happened, and the Jewish people are ready to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah, Jesus will come back without delay. Amen. The Bible tells us he doesn't want to delay. It's his mercy that he's waiting. And so he will come back without delay when those things are met. Now, unfortunately, the Bible also tells us some horrible things will happen to the church as well, but some horrible things are going to have to happen to the Jewish people in order to get them to that place. But he is absolutely committed to it happening. And so Satan is absolutely committed to ha having it not happen, okay? But I want to show you this in Zechariah again. We're going to go back to Zechariah. It's actually one of my favorite books. And maybe, uh, you know, some of you might get inspired enough this week and read the book of Zechariah. It's only 14 chapters, and they're really good, okay? But Zechariah chapter 12, we see that Jesus is absolutely committed to this thing of the Jewish people receiving him as their Messiah when he comes back. And, uh, and we see this in verse 10. God says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's the Jewish people. A spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, whom, on him whom they have pierced. Now, the amazing thing about this prophecy is Jesus hasn't died yet when Zechariah wrote this. Is that not incredible? He's already looking ahead to the time when Jesus comes back and he says, and he doesn't understand it, I'm sure, all, but he says when the Messiah comes back, he's got pierced hands. He's already foreseeing the cross in the midst of all this. But he says, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And it's a good mourning. It's a mourning of repentance. They're going to regret 2,000 years of rejecting him as a whole. They're going to see Jesus and they're going to go, we're sorry we didn't accept you right at the beginning. We're sorry that we've resisted you for so long. And they're going to weep. And it goes on for a few verses and describes this repentance that's going to sweep across the entire Je Jewish nation at that time. Whoever is alive as a Jewish person when Jesus comes back, they're all going to get the spirit of grace and they're all going to repent and they're all going to accept Jesus. And it continues on, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And so they're all going to get saved. They're not going to get saved because they're Jews. They're going to get saved because they believe in Jesus. But this promise is only to the Jewish nation. This will not happen. God's going to have saved people from every nation on the earth. But only one nation has a promise that whoever's alive when he comes back, they're all going to get saved. And the Apostle Paul talks about this as well in Romans chapter 11. Okay? In Romans chapter 11, he tells the Roman Christians not to be arrogant towards the Jewish people, which is what we see happening in many places in the church in the West today, is Christians becoming arrogant towards the Jewish people in the land of Israel. And Paul warns us about this in Romans 11. He says, do not be arrogant towards the Jewish people. And he gives three reasons. He says, first of all, it was necessary for the Jews to reject Jesus in order for more of you Gentiles to get saved. Which is very interesting, by the way. He says, so even when the Jews rejected Jesus, they were still the vehicle of blessing to the nations. Paul makes this argument, and I'm not going to get into detail in it when we actually get to the verse. I'm going to read you the verse in just a moment. But Paul makes this argument. He says, when they rejected him, that was actually for your good. It was when they persecuted the disciples, the disciples spread out and spread the gospel everywhere. So even when the Jews were rejecting Jesus, they were still the vehicle of his blessing and spreading the gospel through the persecution. So he says, don't be arrogant toward them. Second, he says, the day would come when they would all turn around and accept Christ. 
And then third, he makes a point. I'm going to show you all this right away. The Jewish nation receiving Christ would be the trigger for the rest of us being resurrected. And I want to show you this now, Romans 11, 25 to 27. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Okay? So in other words, God in his mercy to us is, is, is prolonging the hardening so that more of us can be saved. Because the moment they're saved, he's coming back. And then he says, verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. The day is coming when the happy ending. The Bible tells us so much of the sad part of the unfaithfulness of the Jewish people. And not to pick on them. What nation has been faithful to God? Now, so we're not picking on them as being worse. It's like, well, us Canadians have been faithful to God. Hmm. No. What nation has been faithful? But it's still a sad story. It's a story of the Jewish people and their unfaithfulness and their back and forth and their breaking of the covenants and all this sort of stuff. But in the end, God is committed to a happy ending when they will all accept him and be saved forever. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, from Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God's saying, I am promising to do this. And then in verses 11 to, 11 to 15, he says this, and I love, this is a great passage right here. And he says this, Again I ask, did they, speaking of the Jewish people, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, so in other words, in their rejection of Jesus, we get riches, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Now you're starting to understand why the devil is accusing them. If their rejection of Jesus means blessing, how much more their acceptance of Jesus? And then he says this in verse 15. For if their re rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The moment the Jewish people say, Jesus is our Messiah, we get resurrected bodies. And we just got some motivation for some prayer there, right? What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The Great Commission and the Jewish people, those two things. And now you know why, Paul, why Peter says in his, in his epistle, he says that we can speed the day of God's coming. We can speed it as a church around the world. We can speed it by furthering the Great Commission, by strengthening the church and reaching more people and praying for the Jewish people to receive Jesus. And that way we can speed it up. And that's awesome. You say, well, what does all this have to do with accusation? Again, Satan knows that the moment the Jewish people are ready to receive Jesus as their Messiah, his time is up. And so he's got a two-pronged attack. He's accusing them in heaven. He is accusing them based on God's righteousness and holiness. You cannot keep your promises to them or you're not a holy, just God. And he accuses them of every single thing and reminds God of the fact that they were against his son and that they rejected Jesus and all the other stuff and the fact that they still continue to live in rebellion to God today as a nation as a whole. But then he's got a second prong to his attack as well. He's not just accusing in heaven. He is also accusing them here on earth, okay? He's also accusing them here on earth. And again, I ask the question, have you ever wondered why throughout all of history the Jewish people have always been singled out from among all the other nations for hatred? It's not that other nations haven't been hated. Other nations have been hated as well. But if you want to just pick one people group that throughout history consistently all over the globe, you can find it on pretty much any continent, and you can find it throughout almost any time period through the last two to 3,000 years, is you'll find that the Jewish people have consistently been hated everywhere. And the question is, why? Why? I mean, World War II. Adolf Hitler comes up out of nowhere and decides to wipe out all of the Jews in, in Europe and hopefully, eventually for him, hopefully for him, that all the Jews in all the entire world, but not, like, I mean, he didn't pick on Italians. Now, I'm not saying he should. If you're Italian here, I'm not saying that, okay? But he didn't pick on Italians. He didn't, it wasn't Africans. I mean, he killed lots of other people too. But, I mean, there was this is one. I mean, he picks on one. It's got to be the Jews. Why? Why in the entire century leading up to the Holocaust in Russia did the Jews live in terror because of the pogroms? The, the government didn't even tell people to do them. People would spontaneously in cities and towns across Russia, they would gather into mobs and, and, and then cl cleanse or whatever you want to call it, horrible ethnic cleansing. They would, they would gather and they would kill all the Jews in their towns and cities, burn all their stuff. Why them? You know, I mean, we, we can just go through history like crazy. I, I wrote down a few dates here, you know, um, and I have it written here somewhere. Yeah, here it is. In the 1600s, more than 100,000 Jews massacred in Poland, 200,000 in the Ottoman Empire. 
1290, all the Jews were expelled from England. In 1394, 100,000 of them expelled from France. In 1421, thousands more expelled and killed in Austria. In 1492, all 200,000 Jews expelled from Spain. Their synagogues burned, many tortured and killed. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And we can just list many, many more. Why? If you, if you ask me, hatred for the Jew throughout history is one of the greatest proofs for the existence of a real Satan. How else can you explain that? There, but we see here physical evidence for a physical being called Satan who is powerful enough to affect his hatred on the entire world for a group of people. Now the shameful thing is, it's not just in world history, it's in organized church history too. And this is something we're sorely lacking in awareness of. We don't know a lot about our church history, and some of it is good. We need to know the good parts, we also need to know the bad parts. And the bad thing is, throughout church history, many church leaders have been virulently anti-Jewish. Martin Luther, for example, uh, you know, some, did some really great things. But he also wrote and said some of the most vile, despicable, hateful things about the Jewish people you can imagine. And Hitler was glad to quote, repeatedly glad to quote, Martin Luther when he went and, and engineered the Holocaust. That's part, of our, that's part of church history. Of course, the Crusades are well-known. People under the name of Jesus going into Jerusalem and committing the worst despicable atrocities against the Jewish people. And I could list you name after name after name after name of, name of big-name church leaders from the past who hated the Jewish people and said horrible things to them and tried to use the Bible to back it up. It's absolutely awful. But again, the question is why? And we can see this. We can see this river of accusation. In Zechariah 3, we see Satan, and it seems like kind of a tame seen. This doesn't really affect us. We see Satan in heaven accusing the Jewish people. But what we see here on earth is physical proof that this is not a tame scene, that Satan is a very real being. He is incredibly powerful and he, enough, powerful enough to affect world opinion and to cause the world and even to, 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 uh, to dupe many Christians and have them hate this people who are so closely tied to everything Jesus wants to do and bless us on the earth for. And the tide is growing again right now as we speak. Satan knows the completion of the Great Commission is getting closer and closer. Again, and I've said this before many times in messages, I'll keep saying it, but many people think it's possible. We don't know. Will it speed up a little bit? Will it slow down? I don't know. Um, but certainly it is possible that the Great Commission could actually be completed in the next 20 or 25 years. It's shocking. It's amazing. It's incredible. And Satan knows his time is getting shorter and shorter. And so we're seeing, you know, you would think, well, we just had World War II. People aren't going to hate the Jews again that quickly. And it is stunning what you see happening in the world today. Amen. You can go to pretty much any university campus in Canada or the United States right now and find anti-Israel groups, probably every single one, but almost every single one. Uh, you'll find boycott Israel campaigns everywhere. And the interesting thing to me is, uh, you know, young people want to get behind a cause. So you want to boycott someone, you want to you champion the cause of social justice, and they pick on Israel? Like, I mean, I can think of a lot of pretty bad countries out there. I don't see any anti-North Korean boycott North, North Korea campaigns, or the Sudan, or China continues to do awful things, have a, a hideous human rights a record. We could talk about Saudi Arabia and Iran. I could just make a whole list of actual countries that are horrible to their people. Absolutely awful. But you go on to university campuses across Canada and the U.S. and all of the West, and you don't find anti-Sudan groups. You don't find anti-Saudi Arabia groups. You find anti-Israel groups, though, everywhere. Boycott Israel groups everywhere. Why? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. You go to the United Nations. It's not just on university campuses. You go to the United Nations, almost half of all the... So the United Nations has been around, what, 65 years or so. Did you know that almost half of all the resolutions they have passed condemning countries have had to do with Israel? They make up 0.2% of the world's population. They, I mean, they pay lip service. You know, Syria, horrific things happen. Well, we'll pass, maybe, maybe we'll pass a resolution this year, but next year we'll actually put them on the Human Rights Commission. We've got nations doing horrific things to people, and yet the UN spends all of their time hating on Israel. Why? There is a real Satan out there. And he knows that God's end time plan, there's this nation, and maybe to our Western sensibilities, we just want to know, you know, help me to have a better business and a better marriage. Well, that's great too. 
but we're completely unaware of this huge storyline and war that's going on all around us, and Satan is consumed with stopping or delaying the return of Jesus and the setup of his kingdom, and he knows that it hinges a lot around this tiny little nation called Israel. So you can go to Israel and see for yourself. I've been there a number of years ago, Pastor Ray as well, a number of others of you as well. You'll hear, often hear people in the media, they call Israel a racist state. You can go there for yourself and find out 20% of the population in, in Israel proper is Arab. And they have all the rights of Israeli citizenship as Jews do. In fact, more than 16 members in their parliament out of 120 seats, 16 members are Arab. They're not even Jewish, more than 10%. Um, it's not a racist state. Now, of course... You know, it just doesn't mean we get weird about this. Some people think, you know, okay, well, the fact that we've, you know, that God loves the Jews mean now that we have to say everything they do is right. No, no, as a nation, they're still living in rejection of God. It doesn't mean that we pretend everything they do is right. It also doesn't mean that we hate Palestinians and Arabs. Amen? See, that's part of Satan's accusation as well. If you're on one side, you hate the other. Not true. We love the Jewish people, and we love that God is coming back to that land, and they have a right to be there. But we also love Palestinians and Arabs, and there's some amazing stuff going on among the Muslim peoples as well. And Jesus wants to win millions of them. Amen? So it doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that we just, you know, everything Israel does is good. That's not what we're saying here. Again, they're living in rejection of Jesus right now. And so there's lots of sinful things they're doing, just like in any other country. But this is God's people and the end times. And we have to love them. They're, they're an integral part of the storyline of what Jesus is doing. We have to love them and pray for them. But what we're seeing now is that many churches, many churches are getting sucked into Satan's accusation right now as well under the guise of social justice. And the history of Israel is being rewritten to make it seem like the Jews have no right to be in that land and that they stole all their land from Palestinians, which is patently not true. I did a whole course about that a few years ago. If you're interested in that, you can look up some of that material. We have books in the library as well. But it's patently untrue, but it's repeated in the media thousands and thousands and thousands of times every year. But it's all part of Satan's river of accusation. It's a river of accusation and slander that is covering the earth, and it's going to get worse. But what many Christians do not realize is that God is using Israel to test our hearts. Joel chapter 3 says this, verse 1, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and by the way, if you want to see a parallel to this, this passage, Jesus is referring to this passage when he says in Matthew 25 that he's going to come and sit on his throne and, and judge all the nations. He's, he's pulling out of Joel here. So Joel chapter 3 says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, what is he going to do with all the nations? He's going to gather them all together. This is going to be a big meeting. You're all, you are all invited. Actually, no, you all have to come. So he's going to gather all the nations together in the valley of Jehoshaphat. And what's he going to do? And I will enter into judgment with them there. Judgment about what? Right? Judgment about what? That's a good question. Judgment about what? Is it just judgment in general for the sins? Well, there is a judgment for that as well. But that isn't this judgment. That's where we all stand individually. There's also a great white throne judgment. At the end, when every person who's ever lived, believe or not, or, and mostly unbelievers, we have our own judgment seat before Christ, but unbelievers will stand before God, to give account for what they have done. That is not this judgment. He's going to gather all the nations together right here on the earth, and he's going to judge them for something. What's he going to judge them for? Well, let's take a look. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Notice how it's not, you know, people today have all these opinions, and God says, it's my land. It's my land. And have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Jesus says when he comes back, one of the things he's going to do is he's going to gather all the nations together and he's going to judge them based on their treatment of Israel. This is going to happen. This is for sure going to happen. He's not going to be wrong. He's going to judge them based on their treatment of Israel. And so we see that actually, you know, in the Bible, one of the most common names for God, people don't realize this, we think of, you know, uh, Adonai, Elohim, some of these things. One of the most common names for God in the entire Bible is what? The God of Israel. He's the God of Israel. It doesn't mean, like I said before, it doesn't mean that he loves Jews and he doesn't like non-Jews. He loves us all and wants to bless us all, but he has chosen to identify himself with this people and bless us through this people. Sovereignly, he's decided that. 
So he's the God of Israel. People who don't like that, it becomes a stumbling block. And he says, I'm going to test if you're really walking with me because you can say you're walking with Jesus. You can say you have his Holy Spirit in your heart. But if you hate something he loves or you are opposed to something he loves, how can you say you really walk with him? And so it becomes a stumbling block. It becomes a litmus test. Who really walks with Jesus and who walks with an opinion of or who worships what they want Jesus to be or their own version of who Jesus is? Jesus says, I'm the God of Israel. So important, so very important. And again, this does not mean that we are against Arabs and Palestinians. We love them, we want them all to know the gospel, but we can love the Jews and pray for them at the same time. Well, anyway, I want to finish off this message now with a twist. Because if we go back to Zechariah 3, I want to bring this home now, because there's something really neat in here as well. If we go back to Zechariah 3, verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand, to accuse him, okay? And so again, we saw before, the high priest's job was to represent the nation before God, okay? And you say, well, that's a, that's a neat pre- piece of trivia, okay? The high priest, you know, made intercession for the people. He stood before God and represented a whole, the whole country, the whole nation, the whole people group. You say, well, that's a neat piece of trivia from the ancient past, but what does it apply to us today? Well, and, and the way it applies to us today is we still actually need a high priest today, don't we? We still need someone to represent us before God and make intercession before us before God, don't we? That didn't end with Israel, and it didn't just end with the Jewish people. So they had a high priest to make intercession between them and God to represent them before God. We still need that today, and the New Testament talks about that. So who's our high priest today? Well, it says in Hebrews chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So what does that mean? You say, what is practically, how does that impact me? What does that mean? This should, this should bring joy to our hearts. Because it means that now Jesus, not just for the Jewish people, but for all of us, it means that Jesus is our high priest in heaven representing us before God. You say, what does that have to do with accusation? It has everything to do with accusation. Because it means that when Satan wants to accuse you before the Father, he has to go through who? He's got to go to Jesus. He has to make his accusation to Jesus. You know what else it means? It means that Jesus is the one arguing on our behalf to the Father against Satan. Now, I'll throw my lot with Jesus as my lawyer any day. Hebrews chapter 7 says this, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that's Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He never dies. Love that about him. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you ever think about that, that Jesus lives to make intercession for us? Now, when we think about intercession, we generally think of prayer, okay? And it's because the words are, usually, are often tied together for us. So you might be thinking as you read this passage that Jesus is on his knees praying for you all the time, and maybe there's a sense in which that is true as well, okay? But that's not what this passage is talking about. Intercession here, he's not talking about prayer, what he's talking about is that the devil comes and makes an accusation against you, and, he wants, and he's got to go to the Father. And so he says, um, you know, so-and-so just had that lustful thought again. So-and-so was weak. So-and-so fell. So-and-so doesn't pray enough. So-and-so doesn't read the Bible enough. So-and-so doesn't do this enough, doesn't do that, blah, 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 blah. So you should reject them. They should, they're not spiritual enough. And Satan brings this load, this river of accusation to the Father. Well, Jesus, who answers him on that one? Often we carry the burden, we think we have to answer. We get up and we try to pray, and it's like, oh, we just feel so condemned. We, don't, we try to wrestle from under that, and we don't realize it's actually Jesus' job to intercede for you to the Father, to make intercession, which means to give your defense, to intercede on your behalf to the Father. So Satan brings this river of accusation. He says, they're not spiritual enough. They don't pray enough. They messed up. They had this thought. They ba 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 And then the Father says, okay, high priest, uh, you're the one who represents them. And Jesus says, actually, Father, you know, I paid for that one. I paid for that one. I paid for that one. I paid for all of them with my blood. Amen. And he defends us by himself. Amen. And so we live under this accusation in heaven. It's actually, Jesus has already paid for it. He's the one defending you. Part of our problem is that we continue to wrestle under that condemnation because we don't realize who Jesus is for us and what he's done. So he lives to make intercession for us. And so as a result of that, a very practical 
Implication of that is Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence, once you know Jesus is your high priest and he represents you and it's his merit and he paid for you and he defends you, now when you come to prayer, it's not, I'm not good enough. I know you don't really want to hear my prayers. but No, we don't go to prayer like that. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Confidence, not based on your feeling and how good you feel, but you can, in spite of your feelings and in spite of the things that you feel condemned about, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't draw near to God based on our merit. We draw near to God based on Jesus' merit. Amen. I don't know about you, but that sounds like really good news to me. Because Jesus is our high priest and he stands there. So, weekly challenge for this week. Two short things. I'd encourage you one day this week, meditate on Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 5, verse 8, which is all about Jesus being our high priest. And ask Jesus to give you a revelation of this in your heart. And then I would encourage you at least one day this week, in your devos, take a moment to pray for the nation of Israel. Next week we're going to talk about how Satan brings his accusation against the church. But I wanted to start this week, just for some of the ways it will work out in the passages we use next week. I wanted to start with Israel this week. Next week we'll talk about how he accuses us as a church. But at least one day in, in this week in your devos, just take a moment to pray for Israel. Take a moment to get your prayers off of the things that your heart is set on and say, Jesus, I love you. I actually want to also just take a moment now and think about the things that you care about and to pray for the nation of Israel and ask him to lead you how you can pray for them, all right? Next week, we'll talk about the church. This afternoon, we're going to have a blast at camp. Let me pray, and then we'll sing a song. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, First of all, Jesus, I want to thank you that you are our high priest, that you represent us in heaven before the Father, and that you are the one who defends us from Satan's accusations. I love that about you. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen us, Father, in that truth as individuals, to walk with you closely, to know that we can enter your presence with boldness and confidence based on the merit of Jesus who intercedes for us. And Lord, I also pray that as a church you would make us strong against the devil's accusations against the Jewish people. I pray that we would stand strong when you're just bombarded with lies again and again and again. I pray that as a church, we can rise up and we can be discerning and we can look in the scriptures and we can love the things that you love. We pray for peace in Jerusalem. We pray for the Jewish people to know you, Jesus. That's the ultimate. Once that happens, you're coming back. And so I thank you, God, for what you're going to do through our prayers. I thank you for what you're going to do in maturing our hearts. And I thank you for the fun we're going to have this afternoon. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.